All right, well, this morning we are in our third to last message in our series in James. We've, we've, we're, we're doing an 11-week series through the book of James. We're in week nine, and we've made it to the final chapter, chapter five. And this morning, our text from, this, uh, from James is about money and the danger of money. Money and the danger of money. I know there's certain places we don't like to go because we know what's coming. Uh, I don't like to go to the DMV because I know there's going to be a long, painful wait, right? I don't want to go to the DMV. There's going to be a wait. You get there, and sure enough, there's a wait. I don't want to go to the dentist because the dentist is going to tell me I don't floss enough. I know what's coming every single time. I know some people say, I don't want to go to church because they're going to talk about money. <laughs> so possibly for some of you, our topic this morning is, is really just uh, confirming your suspicions. But I, I want to start by saying, sharing with you four reasons why it would be unwise for us to never talk about money. And we don't talk about money a lot, but there's four reasons why it would be unwise. Um, four reasons why I actually wouldn't be a very good pastor if I never talked about money. Number one, the Bible talks a lot about money. Jesus taught a lot on money and stewardship. And this text that we're studying this morning, it's all about money. So there's no other way for me to be faithful to this text than not talk about money. Number two, so many of the issues in our lives, so many of the stresses in our lives come from money or managing money. Just this past week, we've seen what's happened in the stock market and the stress that that brings into people's lives. So many of the um, concerns and issues of our lives revolve around money, so it would be unwise for us to ignore it. The third thing is that at Trinity, we believe that discipleship affects every area of our lives. And so it'd be like you know, saying, God, I want to follow you and serve you, Jesus, I want to belong to you, but I don't want to hear what you have to say about my money, would be like going to the doctor and saying, I want you to do a checkup and tell me how healthy I am, but you cannot take my blood pressure. I don't want you to know what my blood pressure is. The doctor would say, then I can't really serve you well. And then the fourth reason why I think it's unwise to avoid or ignore the topic of money is just when you say it in a room, you can feel the room get tense and quiet. And that alone is an indicator. This is a big deal. This means a lot to people. And what we're going to learn this morning is money means too much to most of us. And so we're going to look at this passage in James uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. And whether you like what I have to say or don't have to say, believe me, I'm going to be a lot nicer than James is. So here's what James says in verses 1 through 6. He says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's talking about Eternal judgment, final judgment. James is actually, it's interesting what James is doing here. He's not so much writing to Christians in this passage. He's almost taking on sort of uh, the way that the prophets function in the Old Testament, where at times they would speak to God's people, but they also would speak to other nations. And this is what James is doing here. He's speaking to not so much the believers, but he's speaking to the unbelievers. He says, there's miseries coming upon you. He's warning them. You're rich and you're happy, but there's a final judgment day coming that you're going to answer for your life. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. He's talking about on the final day, the judgment day, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person 
and he does not resist you. With his first four words, James says, come now, you rich. You know, in over 150 countries in our world, the average monthly income is less than $1,000, less than $250 a week. By comparison, the average monthly salary in the United States of America is over five times that amount, which means, on average, you and I are five times wealthier than over 75% of the rest of the world. An estimated 790 million people, or 11% of our world's population, are without access to adequate water. 16% of the world's population, 1.2 billion people, have little or no access to electricity. And an estimated 1.8 billion people, or one quarter of the world's population, have no access to adequate sanitation. It's easy to ignore this passage in James 5 because of the first four words. Come now, you rich. And we just go, well, not me. I'm not rich. You know, I'm never going to be featured. My house is never going to be featured on television. I'm not famous. I'm not rich. I don't have a lot of money. I live paycheck to paycheck. But if you open up your eyes and you look globally, you'll realize that for the most part, I don't know all of your financial situations, so I'm not saying everyone in this room, but for the most part, we are James' audience. We're who he's talking to. We're the wealthy. We are the rich. And this morning, this text caused us to ask two questions about money. And the first question is this, do you make your money or does your money make you? Do you make your money or does your money make you? Jane McGregor, who's a writer in the Washington Post, she wrote an article called The Addictive Power of Money. And they did this research on how most things in life, once you get it, eventually you get tired of it. It loses its value to you. Think about this, the first time you get a new outfit, and you wear it out, and you're so excited, and you hope people notice. But a year later, when you wear it again, you're just not as excited, are you? Then when you go to a restaurant for the first time, and you take your first bite of a delicious meal, there's this thing called the diminishing return of satisfaction, where with every bite, it's less satisfying for the most part, because nothing's better than it is at first. And and a lot of research has proven this. But what they've also found in research, and what this article is about, is that money is an exception to the rule. The more money you have, the more money you want. You don't get tired of money. And she says in this article that money is like an addictive substance. It raises the bar and leaves people always wanting more. No one ever says, enough, I'm good. No one turns down raises. No one turns down gifts. And she says, one executive that they interviewed said this, look, a raise is great, but it's only a raise for 30 days. And after that, it's your new salary. And then you need a new raise. Listen, I think we all know that money is something we make through our work, and I know many of you work very hard to make your money, but it's so easy for us to believe the lie that money makes us. That money or the amount of money we have, it defines us. It gives us a sense of self. I want to be really clear. James James does not have an issue with wealth, okay? There are many wealthy, godly people in the Bible, and there are wealthy, godly people in the world today. So the issue is not wealth. The issue, one of the most misquoted verses in all the scripture is 1 Timothy 6.10. A lot of people say, well, be careful about money. Why? Because money is the root of all evil, right? But that's not what 1 Timothy 6.10 says. It says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So the issue isn't wealth. The issue is the way in which we love our wealth. The issue ultimately is identity. 
And James calls his audience, you rich, because that's all they are. That's who they are, and that's all they are. And when your identity, this is our issue, when our identity is wrapped up in our money, when our identity is wrapped up in our possessions, you'll define yourself that way. Let me give you some examples. You'll define yourself by the possessions that your money purchases for you, the opportunities your money provides for you, the doors that your money opens for you. It's your money that makes us. It's your identity. Money and possessions can be used uh, to gain your sense of self and then to maintain your sense of self. You need money to become the person you think you should be, but then you need more money to maintain that lifestyle and to keep up with the Joneses. And if your neighbor gets a boat, you got to get a boat. And it becomes us what we can afford to drive, where we can afford to live, where we can afford to shop, where we can afford to uh, live or, or eat, how we can afford to live. If we aren't careful, those things become us. And James is warning us. And of course, James is not the first one. Jesus warned us. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus used this shocking metaphorical language of a camel trying to enter into the pinpoint of a needle, the eye of a needle. And Jesus says it's how hard it is for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. And the disciples go, well, then what hope do they have? And that's when Jesus says, well, with God, nothing is impossible. What Jesus is teaching us here about the impossibility or the difficulty of rich people entering the kingdom of God, it's, hear this, it's not the possession of wealth that keeps people outside of the kingdom of God, it's when the wealth possesses them. That's what keeps us outside of the kingdom of God. When wealth and money and material possession possesses and controls uh, your mind, your thoughts, your heart, your love, here's what Jesus is teaching us here. It's impossible for someone who trusted in their money most and above all other things to really love God. When you trust in your money more than you trust in God, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, how do we know if this is us? I want to give you a few things to think about. Number one, pay very close attention to your attitude towards people who have less money than you and towards people who have more money than you. Pay very close attention. That will reveal how much power money still has over you. Here's another way of thinking about this. What are the narratives that you create about people who have more money than you? What are the things you choose to believe about their lives, their values, what they did to earn their money? What are some of the narratives you tell yourselves about people who don't have money, the choices that they've made, the decisions that they've made, the reason why they are where they are? Listen to yourself because the stories that you tell yourself reflect what you believe and reflect how much power money still has over you. Do you have a sense of yourself apart from your ability to earn money? Yesterday, we had a wonderful men's breakfast. We had about over 50 men out. We had a great time. And there was a man who was visiting who was, in bre- who was with us yesterday, and he retired from his work the day before. After a long career, he retired on Friday. And he sat next to me, and we were talking. His name was Marty. And Marty was sharing about um, some of his thoughts and even his fears about what retirement looks like. And I've talked with some of you because some of you are approaching retirement. And while it sounds amazing, many people approach retirement with fear and trepidation because they think, this is who I've always been, and if I'm not this, then who am I? Do you have a sense of yourself apart from your ability to work and do work and provide and make money? Do you have a sense of yourself apart from the ability to live a certain lifestyle? If you couldn't live in the neighborhood you currently live in, would you still have a sense of who you are? Would you lose your joy? Do you have a sense of yourself apart from your bank account, your house, and your stuff? And and James is warning us about this. And then he says that one of the evidences that your money makes you is a life of hoarding. A life of hoarding. Did you notice he said, you've lived on the earth, in verse 5, in luxury and in self-indulgence. 
You've not just provided for yourself, you've gone beyond that. It's luxury, it's self-indulgence. You're fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. The very things that you use to feed yourself are actually preparing you for your destruction. This is what James is teaching us. He's talking about a life of hoarding. Now, I know when we use the word hoarding today, we think of the show, right? There's a show on TV called Hoarding or Hoarders, and that's not really, I mean, that's, that's its own thing, but that's not really what James is talking about. But what's interesting is, like, my wife really enjoys watching that show because my wife is, like, she's the antithesis of a hoarder. She's super organized, and everything has its place, and we don't keep anything, but I think she, she likes watching it because it's so fascinating to, to, to kind of see this, this, this life. And one of the things that I've noticed when I've watched episodes alongside of her is that the hoarder is very often not aware of their own hoarding. And this is actually interesting because this is what wealth and the love of wealth and allowing your money to make you, this is what it will do to you. You won't be aware of it because money actually has the power to blind you. Greed has the power. Jesus, ta- Jesus when he was talking about greed, Jesus said, watch out for greed. Now, you don't have to watch out for something if it's obvious. And when Jesus said, watch out for greed, here's what he's saying. You'll never see it coming. You won't think you're greedy as long as you know one person who's greedier than you. You won't think money is an issue for you as long as you can point to somebody else who's more attached to their money. You'll let yourself off the hook. And greed has the power to blind us to itself. It actually distorts the way we see everything. You begin to see things as possessions that define you and make you superior to people who don't have them. You begin to see people as pawns to use to get what you want or obstacles who are keeping you from getting what you want. You begin to see money as your source of security or your source of significance, and you will see time as something to be thoughtlessly and excessively spent in the pursuit of money and wealth. And James says, listen, you can live that way, but I just want you to know there's two big problems. And the first problem, he says, is this, they don't last. Those things don't last. Verse 2, your riches are going to rot. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. All the glory that this world has to offer us, it all fades. It doesn't last. James says you're putting your hope in something that's temporary, that doesn't last. I mean, think about putting your hope in clothes and fashion. They don't even last from season to season. Homes, they break down. Cars, they break down. Stuff that's spent and it's gone. So James is saying, you're putting your hope in something that doesn't last. But second, here's the second problem. The things that you're placing your hope in can't save you. He actually said that your possessions will testify against you on the day of judgment. They can't speak up for you. They can't say anything for you. And on the day of judgment, when you and I stand before God, the question is going to be, who are you? And whose are you? Who do you ultimately belong to? And when we make our identity, our wealth, and our possessions, and we stand before God, and all we are is a rich person, a wealthy person, a person of substance and material possession, those things, instead of speaking for us, they actually will speak against us, and they will bring us destruction. See, here's, here's God's heart. He wants to set you and me free from anything that we look to more than him for our identity, money included. And the real problem is that once you have a sense of identity, Once you've allowed money to be your identity, wealth, possessions, status, standing, your economic standing, once you've made it your identity, you'll do anything to keep it. Because people will do anything to keep their identity, which leads us to our second question this morning. Do you spend your money or does your money spend you? Do you spend your money or does your money spend you? We all know what it feels like to be spent. You ever heard that phrase? Man, I'm spent. What does it mean? I'm exhausted. 
I've given everything I have. And we know what it's like to have relationships spend us, to have family members spend us, to have life spend us, to spend us emotionally, to spend us physically, to spend us mentally. James is warning us that money has the power to do that. You feel spent all the time? Pay attention to your attitude about money. And when you look at your money, here's another way I could have asked this question. Do you serve your money or does your money serve you? Because your money is either going to be under your submission to you or you're going to submit to money. And the issue, earlier the issue was identity. Here the issue is not identity. The issue is idolatry. That, that, that we look to our money and our wealth and we spend our lives in service to it, hoping that it will give something to us. A few weeks ago, my family and I were in Disney, and I was looking around the Disney parks, and I thought, all these people here, and, and there's really people that come to Disney for all different sorts of reasons, different sorts of reasons. And I, even in my own family, my oldest two girls, they're at Disney for the rides. They didn't care about anything else. They're 11, and they're 9, and for them, it's like rides. But that's changed, because when we went years ago, when they were little, you know why they were there? They were there for the characters, they wanted to meet Cinderella and Rapunzel and Mickey Mouse, but now that they're, and it's a little sad to be honest, now that they're 9 and 11, they don't care about the characters. They care about the rides. Me, food, both times. I was there for the same, I was there for the same reason. But there's people there for the rides, there's people there for the characters, there's people there for food, there's people there uh, because they got dragged there by their family. Um, there's, uh, I, I, there's older couples walking around Disney who have badges, which indicates they've come every year for like 30, 40 years. It's just part of their tradition. They go all the time. All sorts of reasons why they're there. In other words, every single person at Disney has a different treasure on their map that they're looking for, that they're hunting for. And in life, it's the same. Every single person has a treasure that they're hunting for, that they're looking for. Everyone treasures something. No one gets through life without some sort of treasure that they're chasing after, some, some vision of the good life that keeps them moving forward. And the Bible teaches us time and time again that whatever your soul treasures most, you'll pay any price to get it. Whatever you crave, whatever you covet, whatever you adore, whatever you worship, because that's what it is, Whatever you make your God, lowercase g, you'll do anything to have it. It becomes your precious. You'll be a slave. And here's what, you'll, here's what will happen to you. You'll be spent. You'll always be spent on all levels, emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. You'll be spent. And many people in our world today, have you noticed, are spent in their pursuit of money. The American dream. They don't spend their money. Their money spends them. And one of the evidences that this is a struggle for you and I is not hoarding, but hurry. It's a life of hurry. It's, a, it, it's the rat race. It's business. And I know that sometimes business is a good thing because it just means we're doing our job. I get that. But there's a difference between hustle and hurry. There's a difference between hard work and hurry. Hard work is, I'm going to use the gifts God's given me to do the best I can. Hustle means I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity, every door God opens for me to glorify him. But hurries, actually hurry starts in your heart. There's no rest in your heart. Even when you can rest outwardly, you can't rest inwardly. There's a famous man, a famous theologian named Dallas Willard. And one time, a, a, another famous leader named John Ortberg, before John was older and written as many books as he's written. 
Dallas Willard was a bit of a mentor to him, and John Ortberg said, what do I need to be to be successful as a Christian leader? And Dallas Willard thought for a second, and he said this. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You know, technology has changed everything. The iPhone changed the game. I mean, we're, we're, we're always connected. We're always moving. We're always, you always have the opportunity to be productive, don't you? You can be sitting at home relaxing but still be doing work. And I'm, I'm guilty of this and being productive. And a book I read said that the greatest danger to the American church today is not hedonism. Hedonism is the love of pleasure above all things else. It's not hedonism, it's hurry to the American church that we don't know how to slow down. We don't know how to Sabbath. We don't know how to rest. We don't know how to enter into the rest that Christ has provided for us. And what's at stake? Everything. Our, our physical exhaustion, our mental, our social, our spiritual well-being is at stake. And one of the indicators that money is spending you and driving you and you're not spending your money is that you have a life of hurry. And when you have this thing that you love and treasure, we call an idol, you give everything you have for it, but what does it do for you in return? There's a, you know, I've mentioned this before, but my family and I like to watch Shark Tank on ABC on Friday nights, and the main investor who sits in the middle of the room, his name is Mr. Wonderful. And uh, one time in one of, the, one of the episodes, somebody started to cry, which happens every now and then. The investors come in and they cry either because uh, the investors are making them look bad or because uh, their story is so moving, and he starts to cry. And I remember Mr. Wonderful looked at him and, and looked at this person and said, don't cry for your money. It will never cry for you. Don't cry for your money. It will never cry for you. And when I heard that, I thought, this is true of every idol in our life. Don't cry for your career. It'll never cry for you. Don't cry for your possessions. It'll never cry for you. Everything that we give ourselves to has no power to do anything for us in return other than enslave us more and more. The American Psychological Association, uh, uh, on their website, there's an article by a lady named Amy Novotny called Money Can't Buy Happiness. They, they, they studied people with over $25 million of net worth, not you and I, $25 million of net worth. And here was the takeaway from the study. Ready? This is not going to surprise you. You can't buy your way out of the human condition. Did you hear that? You cannot buy your way out of the human condition. For example, he's, this, this, this study said one survey participant, remember, this person's net worth is over $25 million. From my point of view, I would think, what worries could they have? What concerns could they have? But he said he sold his business. He made a lot of money off of that. He lived high for a while, but then he said, you know what? You can just buy so much stuff. And when you get to the point where you can buy just so much stuff, now what are you going to do? I bought everything. Now what? You give your life, you spend your life for money. Do you make your money or does your money make you? Do you spend your money or does your money spend you? And here's how I would summarize what James is teaching us here in this passage. Two, two things. Number one, your money cannot make you and your money cannot save you. Your money does not have the power to make you, to define you, to give you value and worth and to restore to you the image of God that was lost to us because of sin. Money can't do that for you. It cannot make you. But money cannot save you. 
It won't rescue you. People with a lot of money get sick and die. People with a lot of money lose family members. People with a lot of money have broken relationships, broken homes, and broken hearts. It cannot make you, and it cannot save you. Now, how do we live free? How do we get free from looking to money to make us or looking to money to save us? And there's actually a hint in the text. The last verse said this. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. It's a confusing verse. The commentators don't agree on it. Most commentators don't believe it's speaking of physical murder. What they're saying is you've taken from people their livelihood, their ability to live life, and they don't have a voice against you because they're powerless. But there are other commentators who say, yes, that's true, but also James probably was thinking of Christ. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. There was only one righteous person ever, only one perfect, sinless person ever, Jesus, and he did not resist. He went to the cross. He did, not, he did not defend himself. He did not fight against those who were lying about him. He did not resist the punishment. He did not resist. And he died. Later in the New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is asking the church in Corinth to give an offering to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem, which was actually led by James, the author of this book, uh, they had gone through a famine, and they were suffering. And Paul was tra traveling through Macedonia and the Gentile world, and he said to the Corinthians, hey, they need your help. Would you give? And in the middle of his request for an offering, he says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, look at this, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. Why? So that you and I, by his poverty, might be made rich. A few weeks, you're going to see new offering envelopes. This verse is on it. This is why we give. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What does this mean? This is the gospel. Paul is bringing us back to the gospel. He says, if you look at Jesus and if you see what Jesus did for you, he gave up the riches of heaven. He gave up the riches of a relationship in heaven with his perfect uh, communion with his Father. He gave it all up to embrace what? Poverty. The poverty of the human experience. The poverty of the human condition. The poverty of being a baby, a child, dependent upon the care of others. The poverty of living in obscurity for 30 years. The poverty of being misunderstood and overlooked and betrayed and denied and abandoned by those closest to Him. The poverty of the cross. And then ultimately the poverty of our sin and our shame and our sickness as it all came upon Him on the cross so that He might give you and I the only riches that we can't lose, the only riches that won't corrode, the only riches that won't be eaten by moths, the only riches that last, the riches of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And when you get that, here's what happens. You don't look to money to make you because Christ is making you. He's remaking you into his very image for the glory of the Father. And you won't look to your money to save you because Christ has saved you. You don't need your money for your identity. You belong to Christ. You're in Christ. 
son and daughter of the Most High God. And you don't look to your money as an idol because you've seen Jesus and he's better and he's truer and he's surer and he's more beautiful and he's more wonderful than money and stuff. And so we worship him and we adore him. And it'll make us a generous people who are so willing to give, cheerful to give, sacrificial in our giving because we can open up our hands because it doesn't own us and we can use it for his glory and for his kingdom. Let's pray together this morning.